Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Illuminating Primary Care. I'm your host today, Kieran Fletcher, and today I am joined by a GP who is uh, very active on social media, um, a gentleman who's been a doctor since 1989, a GP since 1993, has uh, been a partner back in 95 and became a GP trainer in 2000. Uh, this chap has also been involved in training 60 GPs and has worked approximately 140,000 consultations. <laughs> uh, and that guest is uh, Dr. Steve Taylor. Steve, thank you for joining me today. Hi, good, good to see you. Um, could you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself uh, besides the uh, impressive CV I've just read out for you? Yeah, so I'm a father. I've got three daughters. Um, I live in Manchester. Um, and um, so my daughter's uh, 20s, so 26, 24, and uh, I've got an 18-year-old, just finished her A-levels, um, about to enter university. Um, so uh, they've, they've all done various different science jobs, but not medicine. I haven't persuaded any of them to be doctors. So, um, so chemistry, physics, and maths is the little order of, the, of what they've done. So uh, wow. yeah, yeah. my wife's a teacher, so she's a primary school teacher. Excellent. Okay. And could you give our listeners a little bit of background about your your work and, and that side of things and, and kind of why you became a GP? Yeah. So, um, as, as you said in the beginning, I, I studied uh, medicine in Manchester. Uh, came up in 1984. Um, did my undergraduate training here. And then um, initially I was looking to become a pediatrician. So I, I, I started down the pediatric route and uh, did a couple of years of pediatrics and um but i, I suddenly realized that actually all the pediatricians um didn't actually spend very much time with patients they were they were either um you know doing ward rounds and just letting everyone else do the work or um uh you know outpatients was fine but i i i, I thought actually do you know what? i love being with people so um and it and it dawned on me fairly early on that general practice might be uh the place where i should go so i i changed tack uh probably two years after be that and uh, back in those days you could self-construct a GP program so right. I did some obs and gynae and then straight into general practice 1983 yeah excellent excellent fantastic um, now for any of our listeners who are not aware of who Steve is I came across Steve on uh, LinkedIn um, because you're quite active at posting um, various articles on there sure. um, and what's really refreshing to see is that what you are posting is very much flying the flag for GPs and, and in defense of GPs, when, especially when they're getting criticism in the mainstream media. Um, so in terms of that side of things and, and um, what you are sharing, you know, the facts around GP workload and NHS pressures and things like that, where did that come from? How, where, why did that start, Steve? Yeah, so um, I, I, I um, just to sort of heads up, I, I, I was a partner. I, I gave up my partnership two years ago. Mm. Um, but sort of prior to that, um, I started to look at some of the facts around general practice. And um, I, I've been a sort of hardworking, well, I, I say I, I was a very hardworking GP um, for 27 years and a trainer. Um, but I, I suddenly was really surprised at some of the things I just didn't know. I mean, so, I, I, for example, I didn't know that, that the average day, 1.3 million people have consultations in general practice. And uh, 
um, and that only 67,000 people go to A&E. Um, and I was just, it, it just sort of blew me away, really. Because I, I, if you read the newspapers or looked at the media, you'd assume that A&E would be massively, you know, equal almost in terms yeah. of numbers. But 67,000 compared with 1.3 million it was, was just a massive thing. And it got me looking. I started looking at facts. I look at, looked at figures. Um, I, I actually realized that um, even if you combine all of the work done in hospitals in terms of patient interactions in a day, um, it didn't touch general practice. And, and I think I, I realized then that actually GPs were doing a lot of work. I mean, a lot more work than I'd even imagined. And, and given that I've been a GP for 30 years and I didn't know this, I thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'll start sharing some of these facts in some of these um, online forums. So I, I actually started with, um, there's a couple of big uh, Facebook groups, um, GP survival and resilient GP, uh, which says something about where GPs are at with the names yeah. of those two groups. <laughs> so uh, GP survival has got something like 10,000 members and, and resilient okay. GP has got just over 20,000. 20, and I started sharing some of the facts there and, and, and I was getting a lot of positive feedback and I thought, this is great, actually. And so I started reading more details and, and sharing more. And, and, it, and probably about two years ago, um, I thought, well, I've got a Twitter account, so maybe I'll, um, I'll resurrect it. I mean, I'd only ever use Twitter to complain about my hire car company or um, the, the fact that the uh, British Airways had lost my luggage uh, and uh, and uh, on both occasions, it was really really helpful and really successful. I got my luggage back, and I also well, I got my and I and, and the hire car company um, sorted out my hire car, so it was brilliant. Um, but I, I thought I'd start using my uh, Twitter account. I started sharing the facts there, and, and I suddenly developed started links uh, with various different uh, doctors and um, media influencers. And mm. and actually, over the last two years, what's happened is that I've I've developed a bit of a following on Twitter, which is now X. Um, yes. Um, and um, I have got known for the guy to come to to work out all the, all the num numbers and the figures. Um, so actually, um, so if, if somebody goes on telly, I've, uh, often some of those people have spoken to me first. <laughs> so, uh, uh, okay. Um, which is a surprise because I wasn't I wasn't that doctor. I wasn't high profile. I was just a bog standard get on with it GP. Um, but to be honest, I uh, I think probably uh, um, and probably because I've trained sixty trainees, um, um, not all at once, I hasten to add, but over over a number of years, um, I I really wanted to make sure that we've got a GP service that's that's there for everyone else, and um, and everyone that's worked in general practice over the last thirteen or fourteen years knows it's been increasingly difficult, and um, and. Um, I do remember when it was actually quite good to be a GP um, mm. and um, and pretty well resourced and um, and the numbers of GPs were going up, which bizarrely enough was only 14 years ago. So numbers were rising, money was okay, things were doing okay. Mm. Um, I can't think what might have happened 14 years ago, but um, um, things have changed and um, and it's become increasingly hard for GPs. And I, and I appreciate you know a number of the listeners uh, will recognise the the challenges in terms of workload uh, mm. over that period. So yeah, that's that's sort of how I got into it, um, how I started sharing stats. I've read more reports and um, <laughs> than I care to imagine. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah. But it's, it's needed in terms of, you know, the, what you are putting out there for people to look at. And I mean, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile recently, um, 
you'll have to forgive me, I can't remember the chap's name, but there was a GP who'd been on, um, was it Good Morning Britain? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I presume by what you've said, did, did he speak to you first? Before yeah, not always, not always but, I, but, but but certainly a few have. Um, and actually, I've I've uh, had a few TV interviews recently as well. So I've been on Sky and I've been on BBC and uh, LBC. I, I think for me at the moment, it it's it's trying to cut through the noise of negativity around general practice. Hmm. Um and and really making sure that people generally are aware of what GPs are doing, um, how hard they're working, um, and and the media has not been helpful in this, um, and our no. and, the, and and frankly the government haven't been great either. Uh, although I think some of that's changing. I mean, I think even in the last few months, Sky did an incredibly good analysis of general practice just three months, a couple of months back, um, with some really good information being shared. Um, the Financial Times have done some good articles and the Times as well. So I, I think gradually um, the information is getting out there that, mm. that actually, one, the GPs are struggling, two, that there are fewer of us. Um, mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, just for our listeners' sake, um, before we uh, started recording the podcast today, uh, Steve and I discussed a couple of topics that we wanted to um, to bring up that we think would be most beneficial for our listeners. And and one of the points that, uh, that you'd mentioned to me, Steve, was to talk about the increase in workload for GPs and the falling numbers of GPs. Sure. Um, so I know you've mentioned, you know, since 2014, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, 14 years ago, rather, there's been this significant change. Sure. Um, so what is it that you think has brought about this increase in workload? Is it purely the the decreasing numbers of GPs or is it more and more, you know, higher population numbers? Is it GPs retiring earlier? What, well, what, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, again, these are facts, um, but I've I've looked at a lot of this. So is it, I mean, you'd assume that actually a lot more GPs were retiring, but the actual retirement rates have been fairly static. So okay. um, something like 10% of people are retiring every year and that hasn't changed. Um so what, what's more worrying is the younger GPs are leaving. So they, they get finishing training and going. So if you look at the, um, so something like 25% of under 30 year olds have left, have left after completing CCT, uh, right. which is quite a big number. One in five are just sort of, now they may be going to Australia or Qatar or Canada or somewhere um, yeah. more, more pleasant and better paid. Um, so pay is part of it. Um, what, what's creating the extra workload? I mean, I, I, I mean, some of it is just the fact that we're much, much better at looking after people. Um, mm. So people are getting older. Um, I, I did some work on this probably a couple of years ago. And um, when I started, something like 20%, one in five people were on some sort of medication. Um, um, it may surprise, it may not surprise anyone listening <clears throat> to know that it's now one in two. Uh, so 50% of the population are taking some sort of medication, um, right. which... Now, you're going to say, what is that sort of medication? Well, it's things like cholesterol medication or blood pressure medication. It's it's things that are preventative, things that are going to keep us well. Um, mm. But the but that means that all of those people that historically wouldn't necessarily have needed a review once a year are now getting reviews once at least once a year for their blood pressure and their cholesterol medication. Now, that's great news. We're keeping people alive longer. Um, so there is that. So, um, so there's the fact that more people are on medication. I think... Um, there is the issue around that the uh, we're getting an older population, mm. um, so people are getting older. Um, I mean, the population's grown as well. So since 2015, um, there's seven percent more people in 
the country. Um, so the, the population's grown in that time. So mm. we've seen a 7% reduction in numbers of GPs. So there's 2,000 less GPs now than there were um, in 2015. But there is a 7% rise in the number of people. Um, plus people are taking more medications. We're keeping people alive longer. Um, so if you add those two together, just the 7% rise and the 7% decrease, there's 15% more work. Um, yeah. And then if you throw the pandemic in, um, there is now, as we I mean, as well noted, over 7 million people waiting for operations. So, or, sorry, not operations, but waiting for an outpatient or a hospital treatment. Um, mm. But if you do the numbers on that, that's, that's one in 10. So one in 10 of the population um, are now waiting. Um, and they're not waiting at home twiddling their thumbs. Um, they're waiting by coming to see GPs and, 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 and saying, my, I've got pain in my knee still. I'm waiting for a knee replacement. Can you give me some medication? I've got a hip problem. All of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I think going off what you've mentioned as well, this came to mind when you mentioned the medication. I would imagine, and you may be able to correct me on this, Steve, if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that since mental health has become, let's say, more in the public eye, sure. and people are starting to realise and, and you know go and have these things checked out, and you know whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever that may be, there's more and more medication and drugs that are available to to help cope with that as well. Whereas you know perhaps 14 years ago or or longer or maybe yeah, even yeah. not that long ago, there wasn't that as readily available. Yeah, I um, think I mean I mean mental health is a big issue. I mean. Um, I mean, it's a good thing that we're now recognising that people do have issues with mental health, and it's great that people come forward. Um, I mean, most GPs will recognise that somewhere between twenty and thirty percent of their workload is mental health related, yeah. um, um, or um, has an impact on other aspects of their care. So, if you've got a physical health issue, you may well have a mental health issue running alongside it, just because it's difficult and emotionally difficult. Um, you're right about medication too. I think we've got medication. And, and sadly, uh, we've got very poor mental health services in the UK. So, mm. um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just been exacerbated by the um, uh, pandemic in that, you know, I was talking to my colleagues. We work in um, Bury, actually, uh, North Manchester. <clears throat> we, um, the waiting times for mental health services is just appalling, really, and difficult. And, and you know, CAMs and, and um, other things are just, it's really hard. Um, mm. And... So it's not just general practice that's the, that's been suffering. I mean, I, this this will also be you know the, the the other allied services around general practice have been struggling as well. Yes, uh, yeah. I noticed your um your recent post about that was it this morning? Yeah. Um, or yesterday, and you you talked about the different levels of funding. Sure. Um, and I think it was uh, was it social care? There's only nine hundred and one million pounds put into that, whereas other areas there's you know there's billions of pounds sure. going in. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, the, the funding side of it and the support around yeah. primary care—you know—there needs to be more. And like you mentioned in your in your post itself, Steve, about there needs to be more funding put into both primary care and social care in order to help those areas stay alive, basically. Yeah, and I think I think you know even if there was no extra funding into general practice, I mean I think there should be. But um, if if the money went into social care and um, community care in terms of district nursing and other things, it would make life for general practices a lot more uh, viable. Um, mm. I mean, there, there, I mean, just another number that's just out of the air: there are forty two percent less district nurses than there were ten years ago as well. Forty two percent. Yes, massive drop. Yeah, I mean, wow. just imagine the, the how much better so you know 
community care would be as well if we had all those district nurses back on the you know, um, gosh yeah that is a, yeah that's yeah, a it's, it's statistic a, it's a huge statistic isn't it yeah yeah so ne nearly half the less um and and, and and you know as a gp that's been around for that long I, I do remember how good it was to have a lot of district nurses around. We, um, and you know, and, and I really feel for them because we're trying to give them work, and they're saying we haven't got capacity. Um, they're bouncing the capacity back to GPs. GPs saying we can't do this, and everyone gets grumpy with each other, and it's it's a very unpleasant place. Yeah. Yeah, and just going off what you mentioned about um, near the beginning of of what you've mentioned, with regards to junior doctors and and younger GPs and newly qualified GPs leaving. What do you think has been kind of the primary catalyst for that? Because, you know, do you think it has been the pandemic and there's too much mental health for them to deal with and they're maybe not properly prepared for that? Or do you think there's other factors that are leaving people to, like you mentioned earlier about Australia and Qatar, is it is it things like that where people have these opportunities to, to sure. go abroad and, and earn more money? Well, I, I mean, I, I've, you know, I've lost a partner to Qatar. Um, so she, she um, actually, she gives up me. Actually, she left the practice before I did. I was going to leave and then, I ended up staying around another year and the pandemic as well, uh, because oh, right. she because she left and um, so she's gone to Qatar. Um, I've had trainees move to Canada and New Zealand and Australia, so there is a bit of that going on. Um, mm. I think some some are recognising that actually portfolio careers are different, um, so they can do slightly different things. Mm. So we're talking full time equivalent numbers here. So, so some, so some GPs may be doing other things as well. Um, some are going back into hospital medicine, um, and, uh, working for urgent treatment centers and other things. Um, and some are just deciding that medicine isn't for them, which is really sad. I mean, I, I think, mm. um, um, fortunately 80% are sticking around. Um, um, and that's partly why I'm here to, to bring a bit of hope actually, because I, th I think general practice is still a great job and I love it. Um, so even though I, you know, semi-retired two years ago, I, I'm back in working as a locum and loving being a doctor. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, um, and and you know, I think that anyway. So so why are they going? I think it's it's multifactorial, isn't it? I think mm. I, you know, um, you, yeah. I mean, I, I think it'd be great to do a bit more of a survey of that. Um, but I, the other thing is that that. that um, there are a lot of overseas graduates now working in the NHS, uh, which is really good. And and frankly, we couldn't survive in the NHS without overseas graduates. I mean, yeah. Um, so on an, in an average year, seven thousand, um, seven and a half thousand uh, medical graduates come out of uh, of, of med school. Um, but uh, we need fifteen thousand doctors in the country. So um, so actually, last year I think it was last year, was it, thirteen thousand came from overseas, joined the medical workforce in the UK. Right. Now many of them find their way back into general practice, um, and um, and their ties to the UK aren't the same as my ties to the UK. You know, their parents don't live here. They, you know, and so what used to be a destination for some overseas doctors, we used to come here, live, work, and stay. Um, has become a place where people come, qualify, stay for a bit, and then move on. Um, mm. So I think there is an element of the UK becoming a, a stopover, yeah. Uh, whereas it used to be a destination for medical professionals. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think we got to we got to be real to that. You know that there is there's a shortage of healthcare workers throughout the the world, um, mm. um, and it, and you as a recruitment agency will probably know that. Um, as yeah, well, that, much, actually, yeah. Yeah, that, that you see, you know, the numbers of people that 
are looking for certain jobs and, and, and probably see the, the difference in terms of what people are looking for in terms of career as well. Yeah. And just going off what you've mentioned there, Steve, I mean, in, in terms of the work that we do, I know it's not just myself with this, my colleagues as well. The amount of practices we're having to kind of urge to offer tier two visa sponsorship and have these GPs from overseas, um, you know, who've qualified in the UK, but sure. come and work in their practices in some circumstance, especially in your more remote areas, it's desperately needed because sure. there's no kind of, for want of a better expression, British GPs who you know, are prepared to work in that area because I think a lot of the time now they know that there is a massive demand of GPs and there's loads of vacancies, but there's not many GPs. Sure. So sometimes I feel that they try and play the field a little bit, if you will, but with yeah. the, the GPs from overseas who require the sponsorship, sometimes you are getting a, you know, a damn hard working GP. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's important that these practices don't miss out on that. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear your, your stats. Yeah, and, I, and you know, a lot of my trainees have been overseas graduates, and I love them. And, uh, and, and you, know, you know, one of my most recent ones was a, um, he, he grew up through the Iraq War and was, was drafted in as a soldier, and, you know, and he only qualified as a GP here in this country at the age of 60. Um, wow. Uh, lost 20 years of his life um, in Iraq, but... Um, but he's here to work, you know, and he's, you know, he's one of the most hardworking uh, trainees I've had. And, and, and it, you know, he's, he's anticipating, you know, he's older than me and I was training him, um, but he's anticipating working for another 10 or 15 years in this country. You know, um, all yeah. those, all those years he'd lost from uh, uh, being sort of drafted. In, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We're, we're talking of um, statistics and things like that I, i've noticed that you posted recently um some findings from the international health policy um and there were some really shocking statistics in there particularly about the uk so for instance one of them was um uh when asked about income satisfaction um of the countries that were asked the uk was the second lowest with only 23 percent satisfaction um in terms of whether or not there was satisfaction um, satisfaction with medical practices the uk was the lowest of all the countries asked with 31 percent satisfaction and in terms of the daily workload the uk was by far the lowest with only four percent satisfaction so it's interesting hearing you talk about you know what your experience has been and then seeing the statistics like this you can almost understand why gps are leaving if, if there is that workload sure. dissatisfaction but what what do you think needs to be done to kind of turn that sort of well be sort of statistics around steve yeah i, I mean I, I, I sort of hinted at it when i mentioned before i mean it, it's not that long ago that that no. general practice was doing fine um so i mean some of it is financial we can't get away from that that there's been a um a big drop in income for doctors in the uk um, mm. um not so yeah something something like 25 to 30 percent um drop in income um, wow. um, since 2008, which was a 2005, 2008, which was the peak. Uh, um, okay. and it's been dropping gradually since then. Uh, and then practices generally have been, of uh, not having as much, um, resources put their way. They're going to PCNs and, and ICBs. So it's not actually direct finances to GP. So I think one of the things that needs to happen is that the GP contract needs to be much more focused around GP practices and the funding formula needs to change. We So I think that's one thing that needs to happen. But I think, as I've alluded to, I think 
improving some of the support services around general practice is key. So yeah. whether it be district nurses, social care, um, mental health services. Um, so it does. I mean, all of those things work together. Um, in terms of GPs themselves, I mean, the, one of the things I my very last day as working as a partner, I I dealt with I think it was sixty one to one consultations um, that day. Uh, that was my last day as a partner, and um, and it. And I and it sort of dawned on me that that had crept up on me over a period of years. So if I go back, you know, thirty years when I started, I do twenty six consultations a day and probably three phone calls. Um, Ten years later, it was twenty six consultations and six phone calls and a, and a couple of home visits. Um, another ten years, and it was twenty twenty seven consultations and fifteen phone calls. And then by the time I left, it was so. A bit like the boiling frog in a pan, I'd got gradually hotter and hotter, and mm. and uh, and hadn't realised just how difficult it was. And and so when I left, actually, my my, my the partners that were behind that I left behind, which were to some extent I was protecting, I was covering it, and one of the reasons I was doing so much extra work was to make their lives a bit easier. Mm. Um, they ended up restricting the number of consultations they do to thirty-five a day, um, okay. which is still too many according to the BMA. The BMA reckons twenty-five is a sort of safe number. Mm. Um, but 35 is a lot better than 60 uh, or 50 or 40. Um, so I think one of the things that has to happen is some sort of recognition that, that there is a safe working limit for doctors. Um, and, you know, and a bit like airline pilots or HTV drivers or whatever, that there has to be some sort of limit in terms of numbers of consultations you can do in a day. Um, now, in order to make that happen, you also have to let the public know that there's a limit to the number of consultations that they can have as well. Yes. Um, so we need to somehow do an edu- a joint education program around what's safe for doctors, but actually what's appropriate for patients. Uh, mm. Now, I, I don't want to blame patients because, you know, ultimately they do want to see doctors, but I, um, and we've had an increased number of allied healthcare professionals come into practices in yeah. part to mitigate the loss of GPs. Um, now, the problem is that that's been funded and, 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 and pushed by NHS England. Um, without really supporting GPs themselves. Um, so so I think we need to sort of look at how you support GPs. Um, so we've, we've talked about workload. We've talked about some degree of funding. We've talked about support outside of general practice. And I think probably on top of all of that, it's, it's a sort of joint media campaign, NHS England, government agreeing, let's support our GPs. Let's make their lives easier. Let's, let's you know, let's not scapegoat them from a, a contract from 2005 where apparently they earned too much money and uh, <laughs> and yeah um and, it, and this sort of you know sort of you know and there was a truth in 2005 when gp suddenly had a massive increase in income um but it's been taken all back and i think it is a case of just sort of saying well actually we ought to pay the doctors that we need in this country to stay in this country yeah um and in order to do that, we need to pay them a fair pay. And that is more than the average wage. You know, it isn't, it, you know, GPs are very well rewarded for what they do. But actually at the moment, because of the extra work and the pressures that are under, um, I don't think most doctors feel it's it's viable to stay within the amount of work they're doing mm. for the pay that they're doing. Um, yeah, so a number of things. Yeah. You mentioned one thing there about getting something that would be government backed to I think put the word out there to you know support GPs more and and what needs to be done in order to support GPs 
Um, and one of the topics that you mentioned to me prior to recording was um, the failure to support GPs since 2010 by the Conservative Party and NHS England. Could you just tell me a little bit more about that and, and talk to our listeners about what, what your thoughts are there? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We've had, um, well, we've had five health secretaries now, is it five? Uh, since 2010, uh, Jeremy Hunt um, and um, Jeremy Hunt was there the longest. But in 2015, Jeremy Hunt, um, on, as part of the sort of sort of pressure manifesto at that time, suggested that we needed 5,000 more GPs in this country. Uh, that was 2015. Um, we now sit at 2,000 less than that number, so 7,000 down compared with what Jeremy Hunt asked for at that point. Mm. So they did know that there was a problem back in 2015. Um, but they've done nothing to sort of mitigate that. So <laughs> they gradually cut funding. They've gradually, you know, talked about needing to see GPs on the day. They've they've talked about, you know, that there's been a lot of media pressure to do certain things without mm. understanding what the issues are. 2019, uh, Matt Hancock um, on their manifesto said that they needed 6,000 more GPs. Um, so they've gone from five to 6,000. Um, and even on that number, we're thousand down so yeah. so so that so that's what i mean by they, they say one thing and then suggest another um i mean more recently there's been this sort of end the end the 8 a.m rush for gps um which has been this sort of tory um uh you know so they've they've they've, they've invested 250 million quid in telephone set you know not phone number you know electronic uh, digital phone lines mm. um, I mean, I, I did a little survey to find out how many GPs had already got digital phone lines in place, and it was something like 70% <laughs> had already got them. Really? Yeah, so this was, I mean, it's smoke in the wind, isn't it? Um, but actually, you know, if you ring a doctor and there's only one doctor there, you, you know, and they've only got a limited number of consultations, it doesn't matter how quickly you get through on the phone, there's only that many <laughs> appointments. You know? Yeah. So um, so I think, I think probably some sort of recognition from government, um, NHS England, I don't think, has really been particularly supportive of general practice um, in terms of the way that they've done things. I mean, certainly the contract hasn't helped. Um, and uh, the current GP contract, which has been running for the last uh, four and a half years, um, hasn't changed, despite the fact that we've got 10% extra inflation or 17% over that period. But um, and there's been no extra funding put into GPs to help survive. Now, GPs have got to, you know, we're, we're small businesses and there's a lot of people, you know, probably rightly point out that GPs are in, in some ways private providers. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> they are independent contractors, uh, but we, we've got nowhere else to contract. So it's a bit of a funny thing. And I, I always like to think of GPs being a little bit like the CEO of Tesco's. He's also a checkout worker. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're not just the CEO, we're also the person that's on the till um, and talking to the punters. So uh, there are very few CEOs of Tesco's that work on the tills as well, um, mm. whereas GPs are actually pro providing the work. Um, whereas most private providers, you know, you've got shareholders and other things working behind the scenes. Um, yeah. So that's government in terms of them. And, and media, I, I really don't know why media have been so negative about GPs. I mean, if... You know, since 20, I mean, 2019, you know, 2020, when the pandemic hit, GPs provided 70% of all the vaccines. Um, and and they did it 
at less cost than all of those major vaccine centres that were put in place. Um, you know, it was I think it was five or ten pounds cheaper to get a vaccine at a GP surgery. So they've done all that extra work. And then since 2019, the, the actual volume of appointments has got up 20%. So GP practices are providing 20% more appointments than they were in 2019. Mm. In fact, it's the only area of the NHS that's, apart from cancer care, that's doing more than it was in 2019. All the other areas of, of hospital, A&E, um, are doing about the same as they were in 2019, but GPs have gone up. And I don't know quite why we're not celebrating that. Instead of criticising GPs for being, I don't know, lazy um, mm. or, or failing to see people face to face again, um, you know, which I think in, it's the, the yeah. sense that the bad news sells, and the media think, well, if we report good things that are going on in in the world and in primary care specifically, we're not going to sell papers. People aren't going to click the links to read our articles. So they think, right, if we're negative and we criticise, which I think. Everybody can agree the mainstream media is is very um, guilty of. Yeah. Uh, do you think that could potentially be what's happening? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's probably true. I mean, I think the other thing, of course, is that we we all you know thirty million people a month go to a GP surgery, um, so that's half the population. Mm. So um, everyone's got a story about a GP surgery, whereas actually during the course of a month, only two million people go to A and E. So there's going to be less of them with a the story. So I think yeah. you know I. I mean, it is volume of, you know, that's why we've got bad stories of receptionists who, you know, the sort of dragons on the desk who, who keep keep you away from GPs. Um, mm. I mean, that's going to be replaced by, you know, the dreaded phone you know, on number 30 in the queue um, because it's now a digital phone line and you're number 30. So you're going to blame the digital phone line for being in a, in a hold. But I think, yeah. I think... I think you're probably right. I think it's the popularity that the number of people are seeing GP, you know, GP practices. It's not just GPs, it's GP, you know, it's nurses, it's pharmacists, it's healthcare workers, it's physios and other people that work within general practice surgeries. But so everyone's got a story. And yeah. I, so I think in some ways, you know, it's not surprising that you get a lot of stories in the newspaper as a result of that, you know, because if, you know, if 30 million people get get an appointment in a GP surgery a month, there's probably four or five million people that didn't, who wanted one. Mm. So it's not very hard to find five or six people who want to win to the newspapers. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's fairly, similar, fairly easy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and it's similar with Google reviews. You know, you can look at <laughs> GP surgeries and they can have, you know, really low reviews, but they might only have less than 10 reviews in some circumstances sure. and you can tell you know and when you actually read them what people have written it might be too long on hold or you know thing, things like that sure. that aren't really aren't really worth going on google to leave a negative review for no. in my opinion no i agree i mean patient satisfaction surveys are still pretty good for gps you know yeah, oh uh, yeah absolutely you know they're, they're you know most you know in, in our practice you know 90 percent of people are happy with the consultation they receive or 95 percent um um 80 percent are happy with the service they're getting provided um the, the 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 truth of course is that once you get through the door and see a gp or a nurse or a or a pharmacist you're generally very happy and it and it's a good service you know five star reviews or four and a half star reviews you know um sadly that number's falling partly because of the demand you know if you've got mm. extra demand and fewer doctors your star reviews are going to fall isn't it? it's a bit like trying to get a hotel bed at 
Premier Inn and they've they've reduced the number of beds. Um, yeah. You're not going to get a bed, are you? So you're going to be grumpy with Premier Inn for not having enough beds available. Um, anyway, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah, it it makes sense completely. Um, and just going back to what we were talking about, keeping on the the note of politics, when we discussed the Tories, uh, the Conservative Party. <clears throat> Do you feel that in terms of especially what Labour are saying at the moment in the press about scrapping partnerships, abolishing them, and and changing the 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 out lay of primary care do you think there's perhaps a lack of understanding by labor and the lib dems arguably yeah 100 <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah i got, I got in trouble with west streeting two days ago and uh, he um he commented on one of my um tweets and uh i, I told him he didn't understand what was going on in general practice and <laughs> and he told me to read the whole article which i had anyway um so so I, <laughs> So I'm, I'm not particularly party political in that sense. I, I generally want a really good general practice for yeah. for for the population. I think you know we, you know as GPs we all want a good a good service. Um, I mean, scrapping partnerships um, is not a great idea when partnerships are struggling. So if if you've got a business model where 30, you know thirty sixty seven percent of all doctors all, all, all GPs are partners. Um, and um, and if you tell them that the, their model of, of business won't survive the next government, that's that's not going to be very good for your business model, is it? I mean, if, no. you, if you knew that the next government are going to remove your business within four or five years of you of the next government, it doesn't it doesn't promote good well being and it doesn't promote your investment in their in your business, does it? So mm. and I and I've got to say even as a partner as I've left my partnership, but we struggled a little bit to get people to buy into our our partnership because they're, they're slightly cautious and worried about what Labour might do. So that was the partnership one. I think it was short-sighted. Um, I think it failed to understand what partners provide um, Absolutely. Ge- generally um, and actually that you get more value for money out of partnerships than you would out of a salaried workforce, potentially. I mean, I, you know, that isn't to decry our salaried workforce because I think they do an amazing job, most of them, and do mu- over and beyond what they're actually paid to do. But partners probably do more than that. They they do it over and above plus a little bit, um, and uh, most partners are working many more hours than than, than most people are aware of. Mm. So I think that was that was the thing. Oh, I mean, the bit I got in trouble for Wes was that he was trying to um, encourage people. We're gonna, he was he was advocating um, paying for continuity of care. So you know, rewarding practices that have got a good score on continuity of care, and and those that didn't will get less money. Um, now. On the face of it, it's not a bad idea because we believe in continuity care of GPs. But the problem is that it, it actually undermines all those places that have got one GP per 3,000, which tends to be the poor areas. It tends to be the mm. remote areas. Um, and actually, it's very hard to have continuity of care if you're a training practice. I, I, you know, I was one of the popular do- doctors in my surgery. Everyone wanted to choose me and my other partner. And they didn't really want to see the trainees. So it's gonna. So that was, again, another reason to sort of I like that as an issue. Um, so, and and their their slogan is "We want to bring back the family doctor." Um, yeah. Um, I think my slogan back to Labour is "We haven't gone anywhere. We're still here." Um, yeah. And and, and all, all we need is a bit of support, and 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 we'll still provide. You know, like we did the COVID vaccines. So that's Labour. Um, I mean, Lib Dems. Um, they've probably got a little, little bit less skin in the game uh, in terms of sharing stuff, um, but. Um, 
I think they were they, they, their their slogan was we, we were going to guarantee access to GPs within the within a week, uh, or it might even be shorter than that. Um, you know, the, the problem with that, of course, is that um, some people want to book their GP a month ahead, um, so um, and actually have it in the diary. Um, I've got to yeah. say, it's very hard as a patient. I yeah, I I sort of joked about. I, I was no, I was number thirty one in the queue for my my own GP a few weeks ago, and and it's not easy, you know. You know, I did get get through eventually number thirty one. I did get an appointment actually that day. Um, people forget that doctors are also patients. Um, yes, they forget that doctors are also punters and and go to hospital and need appointments and all the other things. It's not like we don't understand the needs of patients. Um, you know, patients aren't the enemies. We are. All in, we're all in it together, um, yeah. And I think, I think perhaps, perhaps I, I, I don't really think the Labour, I don't think any of the MPs are particularly listening well to, to some of the, the sort of more knowledgeable members of, of general practice. Um, mm. I I think they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. If I'm going to be kind to, um, let's just say kind to Labour and kind to the the opposition parties that they they have to sort of say things that might appeal to people yeah know? so we bring back the family doctor we guarantee an appointment within a week they all sound really good uh, we, we're going to pay for continuity of care they're positive things and i suppose in some ways the fact that they recognize that is a good thing um labor's labor's other thing is and and you know the conservatives have done the same and liberal democrats have talked about increasing medical school places um, which I think is a good thing, um, but as I described before, with you know one in five under thirty GPs leaving, um, that actually retention is probably more important than retaining. Uh, so yeah. retaining is more important than training. Um, and if we could retain those that we've got, um, then then I think we're in a much better position than we would be training people. If you look at training numbers, training numbers in general practice have gone up and up and up over the last ten years. <clears throat> um, yet the outcome of that increased training there's been a drop in numbers of gps yeah so so the so the, the mass doesn't quite add up does it um no I, I think just going off what you've mentioned about labor you know having these slogans and and saying these things to try and stand out a little bit i suppose it, it's just like the tories saying we want six thousand more gps but the question is how are you going to do it yeah exactly it, you know, it's all well and good saying this is what we're going to do. Um, I mean, I remember it when, um, not to get too off the political bandwagon, but when Jeremy Corbyn, when he was running and he was saying, we're going to abolish student fees. Well, how? Yeah, how yeah. are you going to do it? And yeah. it was never explained and it never happened. Sure. So I, I think in, this, in the case of primary care, it's, it's that, and it, it's thanks to people like yourself, Steve, who are asking the questions and putting the facts and the stats out there that helping people realise this is the actual lay of the land in primary care, not what the mainstream media is necessarily telling you, but this is this is you know evidence backed factual yeah, yeah. information. Um, and I think a, a point to bring us towards the um, towards the end of this podcast and this episode, Steve, is um, hope. Yes. Do you do you still believe that there is, for, for want of a better expression, let's say hope? for primary care yeah i do i, I mean i i you know I, I wouldn't have been a gp 30 years and I, I actually love the job i think it's a great job i it's such a privilege it's to a be vocation part, well it's such a privilege to be part of people's lives um mm. 
you know and it, and you know even now as i go back i mean i locum in the part in my in the practice that i was a uh, partner in um and i i've become their perfect locum because i just cover every holiday um but um i you know the 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 the, the satisfaction people get from ah oh, it's great to see you and that sort of thing it's just a joy i mean there is joy in that job and, and i think most doctors recognize the joy in the work um, and the, and the challenge as well i think you know there's you know, the significant challenge in diagnosing somebody correctly and getting the right and getting getting the job done well. Um, so there's hope in that. I think there's hope in the fact that people are still applying to medical school, um, that medical schools are oversubscribed three to one um, mm. every year still. Um, I think there's hope in the fact that people want to be GPs and, and training numbers are up. I think that's hopeful. Um, so, so therefore, I'm probably hopeful that you could turn it around um, with with a bit of the same impetus that came in the sort of early noughties um, sort of two th- you know between 97 and, and 2004 where there, there was in, there was money put into general practice um, mm. and and the reverse in you know retention did change uh, there were some mistakes made and uh, you know and, uh, you know and and for a brief period in time gps were probably paid a bit too much um i was one of the good recipients of that particular thing um we, you could argue we're just receiving money we didn't have from the previous ten years, but um, but it, but I think um, because I've seen it happen once, I'm, I'm fairly convinced it can happen again. Um, mm. But I think what it doesn't need is revolution. It doesn't need the end of partnerships. It it, it doesn't. It needs working with partnerships. Um, it it um, it does need allied healthcare professionals working with GPs, so the pharmacists, yeah. the physios, the um, but it needs more GPs. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, you know, that although there's been 2,000 less GPs oh, since 2015, there's been 29,000 more doctors added to the health service. Um, okay. So in hospital, there's been that many. So there are doctors in and around the NHS. Um, mm. And I think we just need to change the atmosphere. Um, and, and and funding probably does need to change. Um, one of yeah. my, you know, one of my favourite... Um, little memes I've done is that we spend more on healthcare in the UK. Hey, um, we spend less on GPs in the UK than we do on, on our haircuts. Um, so, uh, um, so the, the average spend in the UK is for, for a year is about 180 quid for haircuts. Um, just, I mean, it's not you any probably, um, but, uh, sort of over the course of 12 months, we might spend that much money on, on our hair. Um, in the UK, we only spend 165 pounds a year on general practice. Um, so, um, 45p a day um which isn't a huge amount which isn't a huge amount of money for for an all you eat all you can eat service Uh, yeah and um, that's that's really quite eye-opening when you think of it it's 45 pence per day it doesn't doesn't sound when you say it like that it doesn't sound enough no no and and it's less than a i mean it's you know it's it's you know we spend more on our cars and our pets don't we um Mm. but i think the the if you if we really, it wouldn't cost an awful lot to improve GP services. Mm. So an extra twenty pounds a day per person per year would probably be probably be enough to, to turn it around. Um, which doesn't, you know, on the face of it, doesn't sound. You know, it's it's you know, it's three cups of coffee at, at Costa, isn't it, or whatever. Mm. Um, it's it's not a huge amount of money, and yet it it still is one point two two billion quid. You know, so yeah. when, when you wind it all out, it's still quite a lot of money. Um, but yeah. anyway, so there is there is hope. I, I, yes. I I'm I'm hopeful because people still want to be GPs. I'm hopeful because actually 
most people, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people like their GPs when they go. Um, I'm hopeful because the job is a great job. Um, and I'm hopeful because it's been turned around once before. Um, yeah. um, but it does need a political change. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It just sounds like it really needs, uh, on the political side of things, it needs somebody to really, <laughs> I appreciate that any politician you bring this up with would say that this is what they are doing, but it needs them to have their eyes opened and listen to somebody like yourself and, and talk about the facts and the figures and the stats, really get an understanding as to things and then seriously implement a plan as to how these changes can come into play. Sure. Um, because like I say, it's all well and good saying we're going to get 6,000 more GPs or we're going to bring back the family doctor and scrap partnerships. But how are you going to do it? And, you know, I think as a wise man once said, experience outranks everything. So from speaking to people like yourself, that's who the politicians need to be speaking to instead of just looking at this like a playbook and, you know, reading information in a, sure. in a binder. Um, they need to be talking to people who've been there, boots on the ground, you know, seeing patients, dealing with telephone calls, doing home visits to really understand these things. But um, unfortunately, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm asking for too much with that, <laughs> despite it sounding like the most commonsensical thing to do. Well, maybe we'll get a few more people to listen to this podcast. might help. So, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, speaking of, um, where can our listeners find you on social media and connect with you? I know, obviously, you mentioned you're on Twitter, but what's your... You're at yeah, so, and, so it's Dr. Steve Taylor. Dr. Um, Steve Taylor. So fairly simple. Um, so uh, at Dr. Steve Taylor. On, so that's X, isn't it, on Twitter? Um, I, X now, yeah. yeah. I, I, you'll find me there most days um, spouting something about the NHS or GPs. Um, <laughs> I, 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 did set, I have set up a uh, Facebook page called NHS Facts and Stats. Um, and I post quite a lot of my information there as well um so that's nhs facts and stats uh, on facebook um and i have as you discovered me on linkedin I've, I've started probably once or twice a week putting something on linkedin as well um but that's um that, that that was just me thinking i need to reach a different audience and linkedin is a very different audience from mm. from twitter and, and yes. Facebook. Um, so, yeah yeah excellent um well listen thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure to uh, to have that conversation with you and talk through that uh, those topics and uh, we'll certainly be doing what we can to kind of share this and, and spread it across the internet so that people can uh, can have a listen and, and try and understand what the lay of the land is oh great well thanks thanks for having me lovely cheers Al. you've been listening to the illuminating primary care podcast If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, nurses or allied health staff, please get in touch at menloparkrecruitment.com or email james at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.